Greetings, travelers, and welcome to our extra special spooky episode on some of the biggest, baddest villains out there. Now, we could cover the big bad guys in horror films, but as we watch most horror movies with our fingers covering our eyes, I think we would fail to do them justice. Instead, we want to cover some of the biggest non-horror villains out there in modern media. These villains aren't the uncanny kind, where they lurk in the shadows and appear now and then to remind us that they exist and kill someone. These bad guys are prevalent throughout the respective series. Had we had an extra four hours to spend, we would have included all of our favorites like Hannibal Lecter, Gus Frigg, Vin Villanelle, and the Joker, but we've condensed our list down to some of our personal favorites. Number one. To start our countdown, I want to bring up some of the concepts of good and evil as used by J.R.R. Tolkien. With the rings of power wrapping up, the plot seems to be set for Sauron to begin his reign of tower in Mordor. And while Sauron is a big bad, we also learn a lot more about Morgoth in this series than was mentioned in the previous adaptations. Even the Lord of the Rings books themselves don't delve too deeply into the lore of Morgoth. However, there is no denying that Morgoth was the original big bad evil of Middle-earth and the former master of Sauron. Before he was ousted from the Valar, Morgoth was known as Melkor, and he was among the mightiest. At the time of creation, he searched the void for the flame imperishable in order to create life himself. However, he was unable to find the flame, and creation was beyond his grasp. He could only twist and corrupt. In his letters, and in the Similarian, J.R.R. Tolkien examines the role of absolute evils and the way bad guys are portrayed as fully corrupt or degenerated so far removed from goodness that they are truly repulsive to anyone that has any good in them. In letter 183 titled Notes on W.H. Auden's Review of the Return of the King, Tolkien engages with the idea of good and evil. Being religious, Tolkien draws many comparisons between Catholics, Protestants, and the establishment of evil with the ideas of God and goodness. He writes, In my story, I do not deal in absolute evil. I do not think there is such a thing since that is zero. I do not think that at any rate, any rational being is wholly evil. Satan fell. In my myth, Morgoth fell beasts and monsters and the unknown. The defense of the realm may then indeed become symbolic of the human situation before creation of the physical world. In my story, Sauron represents as near an approach to the holy evil will as is possible. Tolkien concludes his letter by examining the ways in which Sauron resembles other tyrants. In contrast, Morgoth was so much more than a tyrant. It was his banishment to the void that led to Sauron's eventual rise to power. However, Sauron was always a shadow, and as Christopher Tolkien called him, just a ghost of his malice. Morgoth was bigger than Sauron ever was, and his grasp was in all of the created universe, not just Arda. While I am excited for the second season to see what direction they take with the War of the Last Alliance and the Fall, I would love to see more of Morgoth and the Valar on the screen. Number two. It's no secret that I am a big Star Wars fan. And now I'd be remiss if I didn't take the time to talk about Star Wars' most iconic villain, Darth Vader. He is the main villain in the original trilogy, as he slowly but surely hunts down our heroes and the remaining rebels. But before we even see him, his approach is signaled by heavy breathing that seems to be filtered through a machine. And as an audience, we hear the beginnings of the Imperial March, masterfully scored by John Williams. Between these two sounds, we can feel the anticipation building even before he enters the scene. Wearing a pristine black helmet cloaked in black mechanical-looking armor and adorned with a long, billowing cape, Vader towers over all of those around him with his imposing height. 
His foreboding presence is then amplified by James Earl Jones' vocal performance of Vader's iconic, commanding voice. With all of this, it is little wonder why the audiences were initially taken in by this masked villain. Vader displays the very worst of the evil empire, and when the rebels encounter him, he is an entity to flee from rather than having any hope of fighting. And that sentiment stays true throughout the whole story. Vader is never truly defeated by our heroes. Rather, Vader chooses to reject what he has become and dies as Anakin Skywalker. He is a strong opposing force for our heroes and reflects the very worst possible outcome if Luke were to ever fall into the dark side himself. Even in the prequel trilogy, along with the Clone Wars series, we can see hints of Vader developing within Anakin as he inches ever closer to his dark fate. And it's this tragedy of Anakin Skywalker which gives Darth Vader such conviction and gravitas. We can see the journey Anakin goes through in believing the Jedi only to feel let down by them and turn to the dark side. This dichotomy between Anakin and Darth Vader was most recently explored in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, where we see Obi-Wan Kenobi carrying around the guilt and shame of failing his former Padawan, Anakin Skywalker, and that he was dead because of him. But over the course of the series, he learns that Anakin is alive, but now goes by Darth Vader. The series concludes as Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi duel one another, trading blows. But Obi-Wan gains the upper hand as he begins to accept what has happened to his once close friend and ally. When Vader's mask is half destroyed and we can see both the face of the man and the mask of the monster, we hear Vader proclaim, You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. The real tragedy of Anakin is not that he fell, but rather that he chose and embraced the darkness. On the bright side, he did go on to become one of the most iconic villains of all time. Number 3. Compared to some of the other big bads on this list, the petty mean girl seems to be a trivial villain, and yet, as a young girl, they are often one of the first villains we meet. Over the years, lots of movies have given us mean girls. We have Gossip Girl, a show with some of the protagonists as the mean girls, to one of the original on-screen mean girl, Heather Chandler from The Heathers. Over time, the mean girl has become a humanized trope, where we learn that the lines are blurred and the popularity isn't all it's cut out to be. After all, in the age of morally gray heroes, morally gray villains are sure to be on the rise, and the recent movie, Do Revenge, does a good job of portraying nuanced characters. Despite this, there are two villains that we can't ignore, Regina George and Katie Heron from Mean Girls. Regina starts off as the mastermind behind the plastics, and leads the way in lying, manipulating, drama-mongering, and shaming. It is not enough that she wins, but that others fail. Katie is a bright-eyed, informally homeschooled high schooler who joins the group in order to tear them down. But in the usual fashion, she becomes a fan of the power of popularity. Both girls end up worse off for their pettiness, but the story is clear in its timeline and eventual plot twist. Compared to the fantasy superhero-y bad guys in this list, the Mean Girls will always remain one of the most realistic types of bad guys, a teenage girl with ruthless ambition. Now, ambitions are often classified in very direct ways when stereotyping female characters. Those who like makeup, boys, and other girly things are categorized as dumb, popular mean girls. In contrast, the intelligent, bookish, shy girl with a tote bag and oversized army jacket is the relatable teen girl we're supposed to root for. Now, while this trope was prevalent in the early 2000s, it is good to see a shift in perspective with strong female characters being portrayed in both categories. After all, popular girls have problems too. Number 4. While pure evil villains are great for short stories and can often be fun to watch, 
By their nature, they are quite shallow and don't lend themselves to stories with deeper themes. After all, everyone is a hero in their own story, so with that logic, anyone can be a villain in anyone else's story. So if an author really wants to challenge an audience, it's often best that the villain truly sees themselves as a hero and that they are making the right choice. And sometimes, the villain can just be right. This brings me to my favorite Marvel villain, Magneto. Magneto is a mutant in a world that hates and fears mutants. He is also a Holocaust survivor, which means that not only does he have a fictional prejudice to fight against, he also lived through real horrors that happened to real people. This tragic backstory gives him a lot of weight when he claims that humans are the enemies that would destroy mutants since they are simply different. It's scary, but he is talking about first-hand experience of an enemy that saw him as different and thus punished him for it. On the other hand, Magneto's foil is Charles Xavier, i.e. Professor X. Charles is also a mutant and believes that humans and mutants can live in harmony with one another. But Magneto has been proven over and over again that he is kind of right. Repeatedly, humans will act rashly out of fear against mutants, and this injustice is what drives Magneto's desire for change. Sometimes in the comics, Magneto will be seen as a hero, like when he takes over as headmaster for Xavier's school in Xavier's absence. His belief in ideology never change, but sometimes his ideals will align with what the X-Men are doing, so he has no problem becoming allies. And he constantly reminds the other X-Men that they should be friends, they should be on the same side. And this is truly what makes him stand out as a villain. What he is fighting for is good. He wants a better life for mutant kind. But the way he is going about it is not always so great. So even at the end of the day, when the X-Men defeat Magneto, there's always this burning question they have afterwards. Was Magneto actually right? Number five. The main villain of the Harry Potter series is Voldemort, but some might even argue Snape or the Malfoys are close second contenders. However, I'm part of the group that sees Professor Umbridge as a key villain in the story, and part of it aligns with the idea of her as a teacher and professor. We all know the type, the teacher or professor with a condescending attitude, sickly sweet smile, and cruel punishments. They are the worst kinds of villains. And like Roald Dahl's grown-ups, they're the type to enjoy hurting, punishing, and exerting their power over the powerless, specifically children. These types of villains, like Umbridge, don't have any special power over others, except their bureaucratic powers. Umbridge is straight-up racist, and her ideologies are at play in the government of the Wizarding World, where she has significant power over others. In the Deathly Hollows, we see her enjoying her position to emotionally torture Muggleborns and Half-Bloods. Now, most of the Death Eaters are cruel in some fashion, but cruelty hidden away in legalities, government institutions, and policies goes far deeper than just physical cruelty. It opens the door to systematic cruelty and fear. When we see a clear bad guy in front of us, we can attack and fight back. There is a clear big bad, which is Voldemort. However, when we see someone evil who is protected by their authority, we can't just attack, and it instills this deep feeling of powerlessness. Basically, Umbridge sucks. And her fatal flaw as a villain is her small-minded inability to comprehend that others might be clever enough to outsmart her. Her inability to look past her own faults and prejudices mean that she's destined to fail. However, it is important to note that aside from Snape and Narcissa, a lot of the bad characters in Harry Potter are written as one-dimensional or are not explored enough to give them adequate redemption arcs. Umbridge is a caricature, and she's given no redeeming qualities that even Tom Riddle is afforded with his rough upbringing. Number 6. When people talk about some of the best villains of all time, we often end up discussing a lot of male villains. This is not an accident either. Female villains are not nearly as common as their male counterparts. 
For instance, since 2008, Marvel's Cinematic Universe has made 29 movies, only three of which had a main female villain. Even when the villain is female, more often than not, they are written as flat, one-dimensional characters like the original Maleficent or the Wicked Witch of the West. With it being so difficult to properly execute a well-done female villain, it can be surprising that one of the greatest female villains of all time is from the children's television series Avatar The Last Airbender. Princess Azula may not be the main antagonist in the story, but she is certainly the most interesting and threatening one. From the start, Azula is shown to be sadistic, ruthless, and manipulative, coupled with an intense need for power. Though, unlike many female villains, she is given a complicated backstory that does not fall into the cliché of a failed romantic relationship. But, she is also relentless and never lets her tragic past slow her down from her goals, and she becomes the foil to her brother Zuko, who grew up in the same environment, but ultimately chose a different path from her. Zula has all the key traits to make her a great villain, but the one thing that makes her a standout female villain is that she acts like a female. Now, this isn't to say she falls into the femme fatale trope, nor is saying that she is overly concerned about her looks. It's more in the way she fights, as men and women usually have different ways about fighting their enemies. Men will generally get physical quickly, while women will generally fight verbally and psychologically before the first physical punch is thrown. Azula was prominently raised by her father, so she is more than a capable fighter. In fact, she often outclasses many male fighters, most prominently her older brother Zuko. However, she is always verbally attacking those around her, always degrading her friends and enemies alike. In many ways, she is like Regina George from Mean Girls, always tearing down the reputations of others. She even comes across as the older sibling, as she often talks down to Zuko, calling him Zuzu and little brother. She takes down his reputation as the eldest and heir by consistently calling him by such demeaning names. Ultimately, Azula's downfall is greatly due to verbal and psychological warfare from her friends and family. Right until the end, Azula is a fierce and dynamic villain that can appear as demonic evil, but is clearly a tragic character. And as the Dai Li agent describes her, she is both terrifying and inspirational at the same time. Number 7. There are so many villains out there that it's hard to condense them down to a single list. But here are some honorable mentions that we can't go too in-depth about. We have our lovable Thanos, the MCU villain who snapped half the population of the universe away for the greater good. Having a bad guy who believes in their cause is worse than having just a straight-up evil dude most of the time because they truly believe in their convictions. Thanos saw suffering and decided the best way to solve it was population control. There are some people who believe in Thanos' rhetoric, which makes him a charismatic villain, and all the more dangerous. There are other superheroes like Omni-Man and Homelander who play with the trope of the good hero. Meanwhile, they're the true villains of their stories. And lastly, we have Joffrey Baratheon and Ramsay Bolton. Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire have so many bad guys to choose from that I'm surprised they don't make up more than half of this list. But I had to settle for just these two because they had the most satisfying deaths in my opinion. And that's usually how I measure how much I hated someone. Joffrey was outright cruel, and he wasn't particularly bright or intelligent either. He hardly ever dished out his own punishments, whereas Ramsay, on their hand, was intelligent, clever, and dangerous in a way that Joffrey wasn't. He didn't have guaranteed power in a golden spoon in his mouth. He had to learn his cruelty, and he had something to fight for, which made him even more dangerous than Joffrey. Of the two, I despised Joffrey more, and cheered when he finally got his comeuppance. Thank you, travelers, for joining us this very special Halloween bonus episode. 
Join us next week as we explore a new story coming all the way from the Shetland Islands. And as we dive deep into finding out the mysteries of some of the sea creatures that may or may not live up there. As always, if you want to see the show summary, notes, and the five fantastic finds, please check them out on our website, talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at FromEnchanted or Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesfromtheenchantedforest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if, if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard here today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. We'll give you a big shout out and our eternal gratitude. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Thank you.